When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, uh, Make us gods who shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who was brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings on of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them uh, to Aaron. And he received from uh, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it into with a graving tool and made uh, a golden calf. And they said, uh, "These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt." Uh, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow we shall shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought uh, peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly Uh, Out of the way which I commanded them, they have made for themselves a golden calf and had worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen the people and behold, it is stiff necked. Now, therefore, let me alone that that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? You should say, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants uh, to whom you swore and by your own self that and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all the land that I have promised. I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever for the Lord and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing uh, on his people. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain and the two tablets and the testimony and the hand uh, in his hand uh, that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of, of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise in the camp. But he said, uh, but he said, it is the sound of shouting for victory of this or the sound of the cry of defeat. But the sound of the singing that I hear, excuse me, it's not the sound of the shouting of victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of victory that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf that was dancing and the dancing, Moses's anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out, out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people drink of it. Skip down to verse 30, where Moses says the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go to the Lord. Uh, Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. 
So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made a calf, uh, the one that Aaron made. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and heavenly father, Lord, uh, we just thank you for this day and we thank you for your word here and, and the goodness and kindness and just the, the holiness that we see uh, in this. Lord, we thank you and we just pray that you would give uh, things to us uh, from your word. Uh, in Jesus name we pray. Amen. I'm sure we've all sung the hymn prone to wander when the lines go prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. And it's a statement about how often in our, our daily lives, so often in our Christian walk, uh, we do struggle, we do stumble, uh, we do fall. And we need to know that, that when we wander from the Lord, we can turn back to the Lord, that the Lord is there. We're in a passage of Scripture where Israel goes astray. She doesn't just wander in, in some sort of struggle of life. She determines for herself uh, consciously to reject God, uh, not being patient for Moses to come down from the mountain, but actually saying, OK, where is Moses? And now uh, we've we've got to do something. Hey, let's start making an idol. Let's start worshiping. We don't even know if Moses is coming back. And now you've got to imagine this. Moses is up on the mountain. They've seen the cloud descend. Uh, they've heard the voice from the thunder. Uh, there was some fear when they first saw it. Moses had sprinkled them with blood in uh, Exodus 24, uh, symbolizing the making of the covenant. And then he goes back up uh, into he goes back up onto Mount Sinai. So Exodus 24 says Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So you can see why they're worried. You can see why they're impatient, uh, perhaps even thinking, well, maybe Moses died up there with everything that is going on. But instead of turning to God, they turn to idols. Psalm 106 tells us that turning to idols is exchanging God's glory. Psalm 106, 20 to 22, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. They had literally just come out of Egypt. They have seen the parting of the Red Sea. They had seen the defeats of the Egyptians and they forgot God. It's not so much that they forgot his name for even Aaron says, OK, this is going to be a feast to the Lord. It's they forgot who he is. They forgot his character. They forgot that he deserves worship alone in the ways that he uh, commands. Similarly, in Romans chapter one, we are told that that all sinners exchange the glory of God for other things, things 
made of idols, things made to look like the creation. And so we suppress the truth in unrighteousness in our sin, Paul says in Romans 1. And so this is the dynamic that takes place when we go astray from God. We are, we are taking what God deserves, glory and honor and lifting up his name, and we are swapping it out for something else. Maybe swapping it out for our own selfishness. Maybe swapping it out for things that we want to put in place of God and make more important than God. And so Israel is doing this. You'll see in verse 32, uh, chapter 32, verses 1 to 3, when the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said uh, to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And so then Moses says, or Aaron says, okay, give me all your gold, your jewelry, your earrings, the things that you're wearing. And we're going to melt these suckers down and he's going to fashion it into a golden calf. So what they do when they fashion this calf, right, is they credit the golden calf with delivering them from Egypt. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, it seems here that leading this uh, chant or cry or proclamation uh, is more than just Aaron. That there are other leaders here. They said, these are your gods. Another thing I think we should just ask quickly is, Why did they make a golden calf? Uh, Why a calf? Why not? I don't know. An elephant, a cat, uh, a frog. Um, You could have made anything. Why not make a flaming fire or something like that and say that was God? I think perhaps they used something that came from the Egyptian pantheon. Uh, The bull was a a well-known God uh, or was the symbol of of a well-known God uh, in Egypt. And so they might have wanted to use that one. But that sort of uh, leaves us with the question, why even do that if they just saw all of those gods get defeated? But this is the nature of idolatry. We're not thinking straight. We're not thinking clearly. This is what sin does to our hearts. It affects our minds. It affects the way we act, how we live. So notice that they give credit to this object with being the person or persons of delivering them. These are your gods. These are the ones. This one here. This is the symbol of the gods that that brought us out. Not the living and true God. Last week, we looked at the Ten Commandments, and one of the Ten Commandments is we aren't to make graven images. We're not to make idols. We're not to erect things and put things in place that take the place of God or that we look at and say, well, this symbolizes or represents God. You can't contain God and and you defraud God of glory and value when you try to say, well, this is what he looks like and shape him into an image. The second thing, though, here is when Aaron calls for this feast, he gives the name of the Lord. Aaron saw this. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made the proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. 
which, again, kind of leaves open some questions here in the narrative. Is is Aaron trying to say that this calf really is the Lord? Is he trying to say, well, we're going to feast on the Lord uh, to the Lord, to Yahweh? He uses the, the sacred name of God here. We're going to feast to him in light of all of these gods. Uh, not entirely sure what what Aaron is thinking But the point is, Aaron continues to be involved in leading them astray. And and so they're not worshiping God in God's ways. They're not worshiping God according to his desires. They're exchanging God's glory for this image of an ox. And then they're saying, oh, by the way, yeah, this is going to be a feast to the Lord. Then they sacrifice to it and they engage in, in immorality. Uh, Exodus 32, 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So they're doing the sacrifices. They're doing the burnt offerings. They're doing peace offerings that we have peace with with this uh, ox and things are going well. And he's the one that's done it They're They're worshiping him. All the things that. That they should be bringing before the living and true God. They're giving to this idol. And they're they're throwing a a wild party. They're they're getting into drunkenness, drinking, eating, feasting, celebrating, not celebrating God, but moving and celebrating something that is not God. And then even this language here of they rose up to play probably is an innuendo for sexual immorality. Genesis 26, 8 describes something similar using the word to laugh or to play. Same word in Exodus 32 uh, when um, Isaac had lied and said that Rebekah wasn't his wife and she was going to marry the king of Abimelech of the Philistines. Uh, It says when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Uh, There was some kind of uh, flirting going on there, maybe kissing, maybe even more that Abimelech happened to to witness. Some kind of thing that was going on that it was very clear that's not brother and sister. And and it's described just to keep everything keep everything at a PG level, it's described as laughing. They were laughing. And so here again in Exodus, they rose up to play or they rose up to laugh. It's interesting, I think, when you look at uh, throughout the world, uh, when you look at pagan worship, uh, it oftentimes, uh, this isn't true 100% of the time, but it oftentimes involves sexual immorality. You think of the ancient world and they often had uh, cult prostitutes inside uh, various temples. And, and I don't want to go into to graphic details, but there were other things that, that they did, uh, for example, to worship Baal and, and bless the crops. And, and Egypt had similar things. And, and, and down through history and, and across the world, not even in the, just in the ancient Near East, why is it that if you're not worshiping God, if you're not worshiping God, the sex breaks down. The immorality crops up in this way. I think one of the reasons is because man is made in the image of God. And so what is one of the quickest ways 
to rebel against the image of God and then thereby rebel against God. Well, you're already making physical images of of these idols. And so then you figure, why not go out and, and dishonor a marital union? Because God has made us man and wife to be of one flesh, to be together. And so if you're not worshiping God, the logical extension is it carries over into other areas of your life. In other words, if you're going to break the vertical union that you have with God, the vertical relationship that Israel established, it makes sense then that you should be willing to go out and break the horizontal relationships, covenant relationships of of your unions. Now, maybe I'm overthinking it. Maybe I'm overanalyzing it. It could just be something as simple as when you're going to do what you want, you're going to do what you want. They want to go and worship an idol, so they're going to do other things that bring them pleasure. And that's a possible explanation. Either way, it dishonored God and the way God created us to live and to be, to worship him and to conduct ourselves with holiness. As we move through, we'll see number two, when God's people turn from God, God has just wrath and Faithful mercy. So notice here how God describes their guilt in verses 7 through 10. He says to Moses, go down for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made themselves a golden calf and worshiped and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that uh, let me alone with my wrath, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. What do we make of this? Well, first, God isn't flying off the handle. God isn't losing his cool, his his temper here. This is this is not like a, a, a yeah. What's that Pr- pressure cooker? I couldn't think of that pot that explodes if it gets too much. Uh, a pressure cooker that's just building up and just boom. This is God in His holiness evaluating sin, and holiness means that God cannot tolerate sin in His presence. This is an exercise of God's holiness. As such, God's anger is justified and and righteous. God is giving them the Ten Commandments. Moses is bringing them down from the mountain. And at this very moment, his people are breaking them. Now, they can't say, well, we didn't know because Moses had already been down uh, the mountain at least once, I think, if you track the narrative in Exodus. The second reason they can't claim they didn't know is they saw God bring them out of Egypt. They had experienced redemption. But in this in this covenant making ceremony that that God is going through with them, that the I've used this analogy before, and and it's a hard one uh, to contemplate. But it's the equivalent of. Of finding your wife cheating on you 
on the day of your wedding. That God is marrying his people. He's coming to them and he's saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this is the covenant union that we will have. And the people are down there worshiping a golden calf. Notice then it is the character of God's people that warrant the wrath of God. They are stiff-necked. They are stubborn. Moses will say, God will say through Moses in Deuteronomy, that don't think that you're going into this promised land because you are righteous. And he'll even then bring up in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and 10 this specific instance. But he says, from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. God in his grace is going to bring them to the promised land. He's going to bring a new generation to the promised land, not because of who they are, but in spite of who they are. And this is the picture of God's grace. God gives us things that we don't deserve. God does stuff for us that we are unworthy of. What's fascinating here is how Moses responds. Moses reminds God of the covenant. Now, I put that kind of in air quotes. He reminds God of his covenant. It's not that God forgot what he was doing. It's not that God forgot the promises that he made. But Moses asked God to keep his word. Moses asked God to preserve his own glory and to do this for the sake of his name. Moses implored the Lord, verse 11, the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and, and with a mighty hand? Now, now this is a rhetorical question. Uh, why, why are you angry, God? Uh, now, Moses is going to get angry when he sees it, all of it, but God has every right to be angry. Moses isn't bringing some sort of insolent question. But he does say this. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he did? Did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them in the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land I have promised you, I will give to your offspring. They shall inherit it forever. Now, technically, God would not have been breaking his promise if he would have done what he threatened to do, and that was wipe out the nation of Israel and just make Moses into a great nation. But what does Moses say? He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Remember your word, God. You see, Moses doesn't appeal to God on the basis of uh, righteousness of the people. He doesn't say to them, he doesn't say to God, well, the people aren't that bad. He says to God, you are that good. And you brought this people out. And, and you want your name to be known throughout all the world. And if you destroy this people, the pagans will mock your name. They will mock the fact that you defeated their gods only to take out your people who you claimed were your people and then destroy them. Remember that you promised 
to multiply Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. I think this is instructive. Confession of sin is not a bargaining chip with God. You can't say to God, well, I'm not that bad. You can't say to God, well, you know, God, if you just do this for me, I'll do this for you. Or if I do this for you, please do this for me. I can earn this forgiveness. I can get it back. I can do it right next time. But you can, in your prayers, remind God of his promise. And he promises to forgive those of us who turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he promises to continue to be an intercessor. And he promises to send the Holy Spirit. And now this isn't some sort of, you know, we we get arrogant with God and puffed up and we, God, you, you know you're forgetting these things. This is just a simple, God, this is what your word says. I trust your word. Do what you say you'll do in your word. Heal me. Forgive me. Fix whatever it is. Cleanse me from sin. Hebrews chapter 6 says that it's impossible for God to lie. And he uses the example of the promise made to Abraham. And it says he swore by no one greater than himself. Or since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So you have you have two things going on in effect. God makes makes the promise in two ways. One, he says, I promise I'm going to do this. And two, because there's no one greater that he can swear by, there's no one greater to whom he can hold himself accountable for keeping the oath. He says, I swear by my name that I will do this. And so it says, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable purpose of his, his unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to refuge might find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Take comfort today, guys, brothers and sisters. God doesn't break his oaths. God doesn't go back on his promises or his words. What he promises to do in the salvation of his people and taking care of his children, he will do. That isn't a promise of health and wealth. That isn't a promise that everything will always go right and well. But it is a promise of the character of God. And then in verse 32 or in verse 14 of chapter 32, the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt on this verse alone because it makes it sound like the, some, some of your translations will make it sound like like God changed his mind. And in fact, there is Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, uh, has he said and he will, will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So, so the question is, 
how does he relent and turn from this disaster? Is this this idea of relenting a, a change of his mind? And some have said, yes, yeah, see, it's, it's a change of mind. No, it's not a change of mind. And I say this in two ways. One, because God's plan has always been to show mercy to his people when they cry out for him. And two, look at your own salvation. Look at our own salvation. God often moves from wrath to grace. It's not a change of his mind. It's not a change of his eternal plans. But you know in your experience that because of your sins, you deserve the wrath of God. And yet, God, being rich in mercy, sends the Lord Jesus Christ and he promises those who cry out to him, if you believe in the Lord, if you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And so we do experience God having wrath against us. And then we experience God's mercy. And this is exactly what goes on in this passage. God's people have to know there is wrath for sin and you are under this wrath. And as Moses calls God to be faithful to his promise in, in effect, uh, offering repentance as, as sort of a leader here. God shows grace. God turns from his wrath. Ephesians 2, 3 through 5, speaking of us among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind who were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ by grace you have been saved. God is going to show his grace even as he judges uh, the sins of his people. The third thing here we have in our passage is when we go astray, we need atonement. So I want to just highlight a few things that go on here. And then we want to look and we want to say, look at what Moses does. So I skipped reading a section in the middle here, but you'll see that God does use Moses and the Levites to bring temporal wrath and punishment in, in the moment that sometimes sin has consequences. So Moses comes, starts coming down the mountain and he actually comes down and he, he smashes uh, the Ten Commandments. And then it says Moses's anger burned hot. Verse 19. Then in verse 20, he took the calf and he made it that they had made and he burned it with fire and ground it down to powder. So he so he melts this sucker down. And, and I imagine like, like this is not a little campfire, cutesy bonfire kind of thing. Uh, this is a flaming furnace type thing where you are you are melting down gold. Uh, and then as it's as it's hardened again, he takes it and he. He pulperizes it into into powder. And, and I can imagine and I know gold is pretty soft and, and it can flake off and stuff. But I imagine that is still hard work to ground this stuff up into little powdery flakes. And then he puts it in the water and has the people of Israel drink of it. It's a sign and symbol uh, of the guilt here of uh, their sin. Then he goes to Moses and or Moses goes to Aaron Verse 21, 
Why did this people, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And, and I think there's a little bit of, of uh, tongue and cheek in here. Uh, but then Aaron says, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. He's talking there about Moses. You'll see it's a lowercase uh, Lord. He's, he's just showing deference to lo, uh, Moses. Let not your anger, Moses, he's saying, burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. Aaron is saying, well, I really didn't have a choice here. You know, they approached me. They were set on evil. Maybe he's implying that, you know, like this is a mob, Moses, and and they were going to beat me up. There, There was nothing really I could do. He says, you know, the people kind of maybe appealing to some of Moses's really bad experiences with them where they complained and had to get manna and they complained about uh, the quail and they complained about the water and had to get it from the rock. And so Aaron is Aaron is deflecting. Aaron isn't owning his own sin and his own involvement with it. He's saying, well, really, it's their fault. And I think this is one of the hardest things in confessing sin. Not deflecting responsibility. You played a part. You have to admit it. Aaron here reminds me of Adam. Oh, it was Eve's fault. That woman you gave me. I wouldn't have eaten the apple if it wasn't for her. Aaron, like, well, you know, you know, I'm, I'm faithful, Moses. It was their fault. You know how bad they are. You know how evil they are. And so then Moses stands up and he says, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on each, uh, each on your side and go out to and fro and fr- from the gate to gate throughout the camp and kill each each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Now, now this slaughter wasn't a, a slaughter of everyone, but it was judgment on those who were actively engaging in the idolatry. I think it shows us two things. One, God sometimes uses human means to judge sin. Two, why didn't Aaron think of this? I mean, here a whole tribe is ready to rally to the cause of God. And if Aaron really had, if Aaron really was pressured into into doing this idol, if he really felt like it was going to be a mob and they were going to torture him or something like that, why didn't he just shout out, who is on the Lord's side? Come and help. Come and help. Moses is going to go back up to God. Oh, by the way, this is then why the tribe of Levites gets designated uh, as the priesthood. Uh, You can see that in verse 29. Moses goes back up before God. The next day, Moses said to the people, verse 30, you have sinned a great sin and I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. And they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go now 
and lead the people to the place on which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And I think that that's a, a picture there of the judgment day. Moses loves his people. Moses loves God's people. And when he goes back up into the presence of God, he says, basically, let me pay for their sin. Like cut me off from inheritance. Cut me off from the eternal life. Blot me out of your book. Don't do it to them. This is like Paul in Romans chapter 9 where he says that he wishes that he could be cut off for the sake of his people. Where he wishes that he could come under the the weight of the wrath of God if just his brothers and sisters uh, in the flesh in Israel would be saved and hear of the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows the burden that God or Moses and Paul have. What do we make of this passage of Scripture, particularly as we think about getting ready to celebrate communion? What do we do with this passage? That brings us to the fourth thing, how we want to kind of wrap all these things together. When we go astray, we have a better mediator. You see, Moses puts himself forth there and offers to do something that he can't truly give. But what does scripture say? Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And so the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who stands for us in the presence of God, having shed his blood and claims us as his children. And makes intercession for us. That Moses is not the mediator. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the sacrifice of atonement. Moses goes up onto the mountain to say, see if I can make atonement. But Moses can't sacrifice himself. He has his own sins. But the Lord Jesus Christ, who becomes like us in every way, yet without sin, the eternal Son of God taking on true humanity dies to pay for our sin. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, though through a greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing Eternal redemption. And so 9.14 of Hebrews, how much more will the blood of Christ, through whom the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Moses went back up onto the mountain, but Jesus, having sacrificed himself on earth, goes back up into heaven in his resurrected body. And he sits down at the right hand of God assuring us that when we pray, that when we cry out, that when we go astray, that when we have sins, he is our mediator. And we can plead with him and he hears. One other 
application. And this is an application that Paul will make when he looks at the history of Israel. And that's simply flee sin and idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10, 6-9. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they do. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul says we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell on a single day. He's actually talking about another instance, but more sexual immorality. We must not put Christ to the test as some did. And they were destroyed by the serpents. Brothers and sisters, don't let evil and sin dwell in your heart. As we're coming today to take communion, you are remembering the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body that was broken for you, the blood that was shed for you. And in these symbols, you're, you're taking them in. This is, in a sense, a, a covenant meal. Jesus says this symbolizes, the, the, the juice here symbolizes the new covenant of his blood. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you received the forgiveness of sins? If there's some sin here in your life now, I encourage you to confess it. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. But be quick to throw away sin and turn to him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we partake of communion. I pray that you would work your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. That you would forgive us of our sins. That we would see you in your glory. That we would see you in your majesty. That you would not treat us as our sins deserve but you would forgive us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.